You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello everyone, my name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at History of the Second World War. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon, Episode 103, The Two Eagles. Thanks for joining me. As always, I'd like to start by inviting you to join us on Patreon. At the time of this recording, there are over seven hours of bonus content available to subscribers, covering a huge range of topics. The most recent installment included a long section on the ration system of the Grande Armée and the diets of Napoleon's soldiers, which I particularly enjoyed. If you'd like to sign up, visit patreon.com slash ageofnapoleon. Anyway. We left off last time in late June 1807. Napoleon and the Grande Armée were in the province of East Prussia, and had just won a smashing victory over a coalition army under Count Levin August von Bennigsen at the town of Friedland, on the banks of the Otto River. In the weeks after Friedland, the Russians fell back towards their own territory. The French pursued, but maintained a respectful distance. Bennigsen and his army reached the border at a town called Tilsit, which sits on the left bank of the river Niemen, which at that time marked the boundary between Prussia and Russia. Apparently, some of Napoleon's men thought there would be a battle at Tilsit, but the Russian army crossed the river and re-entered their own territory. Soon, their French counterparts arrived to occupy the town without a fight. Here, the Grande Armée stopped. Napoleon had no desire to enter Russian territory. In fact, he had already received an envoy from Emperor Alexander of Russia, and they were engaged in preliminary peace talks. The day after Friedland, Napoleon issued a proclamation to the army, in which he reviewed the battles and maneuvers that had brought them victory. Quote, Soldiers, on June 5th, we were attacked in our encampments by the Russian army, which misconstrued the cause of our inactivity. It perceived, too late, that our repose was that of the lion. Now it does penance for its mistake. In the days of Gutstadt, of Heilsberg, in the ever-memorable day of Friedland, in ten days' campaigning, we have taken 120 guns and seven standards. We have killed, wounded, or captured 60,000 Russians. Horn from the enemy's army all its magazines, its hospitals, its ambulances, the fortress of Königsberg, the 300 vessels that were in its port, laden with every kind of supplies, and 160,000 muskets, which England was sending to arm our enemies. 
From the banks of the Vistula, we have reached those of the Niemen with the speed of the eagle. At Austerlitz, you celebrated the anniversary of the coronation. This year, you have worthily celebrated that of Marengo, which put an end to the War of the Second Coalition. Frenchmen, you have been worthy of yourselves, and of me. You will return to France covered with laurels, after having acquired a peace that guarantees its own durability. It is time for our country to live in repose, sheltered from the malign influence of England. My rewards to you will prove my gratitude and the greatness of the love I bear for you. End quote. But even as he praised his soldiers, trumpeted his victories, and supervised the pursuit of the retreating enemy, Napoleon's focus had already shifted to his diplomatic goals. As we discussed last episode, this shift may have occurred as early as the very evening of the Battle of Friedland. Bonaparte's typical approach to negotiations was not dissimilar to his approach on the battlefield, aggressive, creative, and uncompromising, pressing any advantage as far as he could. But this time would be different. He had no interest in strong-arming the Russians into accepting unfavorable terms. Napoleon wanted friendship with Russia, and he was willing to pull out all the stops to charm his former enemies and prove his good intentions. The preliminary negotiations got off to a good start. After Emperor Alexander's peace envoy arrived at French army headquarters, he was invited to dinner. While they ate, Napoleon ordered one of his aides to bring out a map of Europe. He told the Russian envoy that there was a clear natural boundary between the two empires, then traced his finger along the Vistula River, which cuts roughly through the middle of modern Poland. The Russian representative probably couldn't believe what he was hearing. Emperor Alexander and his court had been bracing themselves for territorial concessions, but based on this statement, it seemed Napoleon had little interest in Russian land. When the report from this envoy reached Emperor Alexander, he responded enthusiastically, quote, You will express to Emperor Napoleon how sensitive I am to all he has said to me via you, and how much I desire that a close union between our two nations may repair past evils. You may tell him that this union between France and Russia was the constant object of my desires, and that I carry the conviction that it alone may ensure the world's happiness and tranquility. An entirely new system should replace the one that has existed up to now, and I flatter myself that Emperor Napoleon and I will understand each other so easily, provided that we deal with each other without intermediaries. A lasting peace can be concluded between us within a few days. End quote. This was exactly what Napoleon had been hoping to hear. It seemed the two emperors were of one mind, but it would be impossible to say for certain until they met face to face. The two sides agreed to a ceasefire and to conduct talks for a permanent peace treaty, to be held at the town of Tilsit. I say at Tilsit rather than in Tilsit, because Napoleon had a novel idea. He wanted to emphasize that this would be a meeting between equals, not an attempt to impose terms on Russia, and so he suggested the talks be held in the middle of the Niemen River, which separated the two armies and represented the exact legal border between French-occupied Prussia and the Russian Empire. Alexander agreed. Once again, he probably couldn't believe his luck. With the scale of the French victory at Friedland, Bonaparte probably could have afforded to be much harsher if he'd wanted to. One of Bonaparte's aides would later explain, quote, 
the Emperor Napoleon ordered a large raft to be floated in the middle of the river, upon which was constructed a room, well covered and elegantly decorated, having two doors on opposite sides, each of which led to an antechamber. The roof was surmounted by two weather vanes, one displaying the Eagle of Russia and the other the Eagle of France. The raft was precisely in the middle of the river. End quote. By all accounts, the interior of this structure on the raft was very luxurious, worthy of hosting two emperors, but apparently Napoleon's engineers built it in just eight hours. Quite an achievement. Negotiations were scheduled to begin June 25th. The day before, Napoleon released another bulletin to his army. Quote, Tomorrow, the two emperors of France and Russia are to have an interview. For this purpose, a pavilion has been erected in the middle of the Niemen, to which the two monarchs will repair from each of its banks. Few sites will be more interesting. The two sides of the river will be lined by the two armies, while their chiefs confer on the means of re-establishing order and giving repose to this generation. End quote. As you can see, Napoleon seems to have been quite taken with his own spectacle. You might call the raft in the middle of the river a gimmick, and to a certain extent, it was. But there was real drama here. The two greatest armies in Europe, who had just spent six months locked in brutal combat, were now eyeing each other from across the Niemen, with the hope that their countries might soon become friends, or even allies. More educated observers were, by now, well aware that European geopolitics were in a dangerous state of flux. A meeting like this, between the leaders of two of the great powers, both of whom seemed interested in forging a new status quo, seemed like a golden opportunity to pull Europe out of this downward spiral of war and competition, and secure the future peace of the continent. Of course, if you count Prussia, there would be three great powers represented at Tilsit. King Frederick William of Prussia had not been consulted about holding these talks, but he had been informed after the fact that Napoleon and Alexander had agreed to negotiate, and was invited to attend. Although, with his country occupied, army destroyed, and essentially no leverage, the degree to which Frederick William would actually be able to advocate for his country's interests was highly questionable. His wife, Queen Louise, refused to accompany him. The events of the past eight months had left the fiery Prussian queen completely despondent. Obviously, her country's suffering and being forced to flee into exile were huge political setbacks for her husband's government. But remember, she had been one of the most forceful advocates for this war. She bore some of the responsibility for these events. For Louise, the failings of the Prussian army and state were much more than political or military reversals. They were deep personal blows. Not only had she worked to bring about this war, she had gone out and visited the troops on their way to face the Grande Armée, and even led them in drills. How many of the men she had helped whip into a frenzy in the fall of 1806 had paid for their enthusiasm with life and limb? She also harbored a profound, burning hatred for Napoleon having to face the man she called the monster and watch him extract penance for her country's failures would be simply too much. As you may remember from past episodes, King Frederick William was a somewhat tepid and indecisive character. He really relied on his forceful, opinionated wife to help him make decisions. He would be in a nearly impossible situation at Tilsit, and it would be all the more difficult without Louise by his side. 
Upon his arrival on the Niemen, Frederick William must have felt like the ghost at the feast. He was not invited to the dramatic meeting on the raft in the river. All the decorations erected by Napoleon's engineers emphasized the symbolic meeting of the French and Russian empires. There was no representation of Prussia at all. It seemed his worst fears about these negotiations might be realized. Frederick William was probably wondering if he would even still have a crown on his head when the talks concluded. As it always does this far north, the summer sun rose early in Tilsit on June 25, 1807. Alexander arrived on the banks of the Niemen roughly two hours early. According to one source, he looked nervous as he waited for his counterpart to appear on the other bank. He had good reason to be. The Russian emperor was just 30 years old, but the outcome of the coming talks might easily determine the subsequent course of his reign, not to mention the future of his country, or even the entire continent. Once Napoleon finally made his appearance, both monarchs simultaneously boarded rowboats, so they would arrive at the raft at the exact same time. Perhaps a bit silly, but in diplomacy at this level, adherence to protocol and the extension of symbolic courtesies really does help smooth the way for the hard work to come. Napoleon's former secretary, Bourrienne, would later write, quote, The waters of the Niemen reflected the image of Napoleon at the very height of his glory. End quote. Throughout the course of the show, I've tried to gently push back against the so-called great man theory of history. In my opinion, and I think most modern historians would agree, generally speaking, history does not move on the wills of individual people. All societies, and all people within them, are subject to impersonal economic and social forces, forces that are often so massive and all-encompassing that they are only perceptible in hindsight. However, with that said, there are occasions when the thoughts and actions of individual people really do carry tremendous weight, and I think this meeting at Tilsit is one of those occasions. A long, complicated chain of events and a whole host of larger factors had brought these two rulers together, and they would be constrained by their respective political systems and the national interests of their empires. However, a great deal depended on how exactly this conversation went. Both sides were going into these negotiations with a desire for peace and a friendlier relationship, but the two emperors would be talking alone, hashing things out one-on-one. -on -one. What if they hated each other? What if one of them offended the other? What if things went the other way and they formed a real personal bond? Stripped of all their assistants and aides and ministers, this would be a real human interaction, just a conversation between two people but the fate of the continent might hang in the balance. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. By now, I hope you have some idea of Napoleon's character. 
But what about Alexander? We've mentioned him many times in past episodes, but we haven't had much cause to discuss his personality, which has suddenly become very important to our story. So, who was Emperor Alexander of Russia? Since his own time, many, many people have asked this question. He has a reputation as a sphinx, an unknowable figure. He tended to keep his true feelings hidden, perhaps even from himself. And not only his feelings, Alexander was a very secretive person. Perhaps this was simply his nature, or perhaps it was more of a reflection of the Russian court, in which he lived and worked all his life a place rife with conspiracies, factional infighting, and secret agendas. Not unlike his court, Alexander was a man at war with himself. He was well known as a progressive, a man with a modern, enlightened outlook. He was an Anglophile, an admirer of Britain's constitutional monarchy, and even of their limited form of democracy. As a young man, he had been strongly influenced by his tutor, the great Swiss Enlightenment thinker Frédéric César de la Harpe. To give you some idea of just how radical La Harpe was, he actually served as one of the leaders of the Helvetic Republic, the revolutionary pro-French sister republic that had replaced the old Swiss Confederacy. Alexander ascended to the throne at the age of just 24, after his father's murder, and with his Enlightenment education and modern worldview, many expected him to be a great reformer to bring radical change to Russia's court and political system, maybe even all of society. Alexander did make some gestures at liberalization and reform, but far more cautiously than many of his courtiers had hoped, or feared depending on their perspective. Even at the tender age of 24, he proved very willing to compromise on his liberal beliefs, in the name of strengthening his regime and keeping the system running smoothly. Alexander was a liberal, but he was no idealist. True, he had been deeply influenced by the Enlightenment, but his generally progressive views coexisted with deeply conservative and even reactionary beliefs. He talked a good game about the need to reform his empire's inefficient and tradition-bound institutions, but took action only rarely and extremely cautiously. Critics have called him a hypocrite and a moral coward but perhaps he had simply learned the lessons of history and knew what had happened to his predecessors who had rocked the boat. The fate of his own father, Paul I, provided a very stark warning of what could happen to a Russian emperor who was guided only by his own whims and didn't take steps to appease powerful factions at court. The assassination of Paul loomed large in Alexander's psychology. Not only was it a warning, it was a bottomless pit of shame and guilt. Alexander would never forgive himself for his behavior in the days before and immediately after his father's death. As I mentioned in past episodes, it seems unlikely that he knew in advance that his father was going to be killed, but he may have had some knowledge of a conspiracy and chosen to remain silent. We do know that he did not punish any of the assassins, and obviously their deed allowed him to take the throne, making him the greatest and most visible beneficiary of the murder. For an introspective man like Alexander, even this limited level of culpability was enough to leave him tortured for the rest of his life. Despite his Enlightenment sympathies, he was also a sincere believer in Orthodox Christianity. In his later years, Alexander's faith would become one of the main driving forces of his life, 
but at this stage it was just one of many influences on his thinking. It has been suggested by some that Alexander's faith was another expression of remorse over his father's death, that as the guilt ate away at him, the promise of Christian redemption became more and more attractive, bringing him closer to the faith. Alexander was a man of contradictions, a liberal and an authoritarian, a devout Orthodox Christian and a disciple of the Enlightenment philosophes an emotionally sensitive introvert who could be totally unsentimental in exercising his power, and a man of high ideals who was not afraid to get down and dirty when it suited him. To his admirers, he was a highly intelligent and deeply practical man who managed to expertly navigate the difficult political waters of the Russian court without compromising too much on his core beliefs. To his detractors, he was a weak man who always took the easy way even if it meant betraying his principles or going back on his word. The French general and politician Armand de Colancourt would come to know Alexander very well, and he described the Russian emperor this way, quote, He is thought to be weak, but that is a mistake. He can undoubtedly bear many adversities and hide his displeasure, but he will not go beyond the circle he has traced for himself, which is made of iron and will not be stretched. End quote. So, in Colancourt's judgment, both Alexander's critics and his admirers had a point. The emperor could be pliable, to put it charitably, but he also had limits, and he could be totally uncompromising when those limits were reached. Alexander was a hard man to read, with different aspects of his core nature in tension, almost contradicting each other. But perhaps that was reason to be hopeful for his coming encounter with Bonaparte because, despite their very different backgrounds, you could say much the same thing about Napoleon's character. He too was a sphinx, with a contradictory nature and idiosyncratic beliefs. Both men were well acquainted with the compromises between enlightened ideals and the grim realities of exercising power over a large empire. In fact, Napoleon and Alexander were part of the same very small club. Few people alive had viewed the world from such commanding heights. There were practical reasons for cooperation, too. Alexander was fed up with his allies. From his perspective, the British had made a lot of promises to bring Russia into this war, but once hostilities began, they had suddenly become far less forthcoming. Although the Royal Navy was pursuing the war energetically at sea, there were no redcoats fighting on the continent, and no prospect of the British opening a new front anytime soon. I have to wonder if Alexander's fondness for all things English and his admiration for the British government added some sting to his feelings of betrayal. As for the Prussians, as we've discussed in recent episodes, their army was turning things around. They had seemed totally useless in those panicked months, immediately after making contact with Napoleon and the Grande Armée for the first time. But after the shock had worn off, they began pulling themselves together remarkably quickly. In fact, as the two monarchs met in Tilsit, there were still Prussian garrisons far to the west, holding out bravely against besieging French forces. Only a few months earlier, few would have guessed the Prussians would still be fighting weeks after their Russian allies had been forced to accept a ceasefire. However, from Alexander's perspective, it was too little too late. The harsh truth was, with its military destroyed and its territory occupied, Prussia had ceased to be a major force in European geopolitics. 
whatever promises of friendship Alexander had made to Frederick William in the past, he couldn't deny that reality. Winning Napoleon's friendship would mean cutting the British loose and allowing France to extract painful concessions from the Prussians. But the way things stood, Alexander was happy to make those sacrifices. There was one potential sticking point, a matter that would loom over all the proceedings at Tilsit. Poland. To Polish patriots, Alexander was one of their nation's most hated enemies. But that's not how he saw himself. Like Napoleon, he had toyed with the idea of resurrecting the Polish state, although what he had in mind would have been more like Polish autonomy under Russian influence. Since childhood, one of Alexander's closest friends had been the Polish nobleman Adam Czartoryski, who had also become a trusted advisor after Alexander's accession to the throne. Together, they had cooked up all kinds of dreams of a new, liberal Poland, guided and protected by Alexander. But those dreams had been dashed by the French Revolution, and the revolutionaries' successful courtship of the Polish patriots and by the brutality of Russian rule in their Polish provinces. Now, the Polish cause was almost totally aligned with the cause of France, and most Poles had come to view Russia as a nemesis. If Napoleon continued to support the aspirations of his Polish allies, and brought a new Polish state into being, that state would almost inevitably have ambitions of seizing the territory Russia had taken during the partitions of Poland, and liberating the millions of Poles living under Russian rule. As they say in modern diplomacy, the rebirth of Poland was a red line for Emperor Alexander. He wanted peace and a better relationship with the French, but if the price was the establishment of a hostile state right on Russia's border, he was not willing to pay it. Alexander himself put it this way, quote, The world is not large enough to come to an understanding on the affairs of Poland, if it is a question of its restoration. End quote. So, this was the state of things as Napoleon and Alexander prepared to meet for the first time. Two complicated, unknowable men who found themselves in a position to make peace, if they wanted it. Unfortunately, we do not know very much about what was said at this momentous meeting. The only two people who could say for certain what really happened were Napoleon and Alexander, and neither of them ever gave an exhaustive, definitive account. According to one source, Alexander spoke first, greeting Napoleon with the phrase, quote, I hate the English as much as you do, and I will be your second against them, end quote. After which the two men supposedly embraced. An amusing image, but probably apocryphal. If they did embrace, it must have been pretty awkward, because Alexander was a good four inches or ten centimeters taller than Napoleon, with broad shoulders and a barrel chest. All we can really say for sure is that they talked for about 90 minutes, before emerging from the pavilion, getting back into their rowboats, and heading back to their respective banks of the river. Their entourages knew things had gone well, because both men were beaming. France and Russia were indeed on the road to peace, maybe even real partnership. One of Napoleon's companions would later remember, quote, The two emperors met in the most amicable way. They remained together for a considerable time, and then took leave of each other, with as friendly an air as that with which they had met. End quote. That night, Napoleon wrote a letter to Josephine, quote, My dear, I have just met the Emperor Alexander. I am very pleased with him, 
He is a very handsome and good young emperor. He is more intelligent than is commonly thought. End quote. Bonaparte had set out to charm Alexander, and he had found a willing audience. Talks continued the next day, much as they had the day before. Alexander brought up the issue of Prussia. He asked Napoleon to include Frederick William in their deliberations. As I mentioned earlier, Alexander went into these negotiations prepared to sacrifice Prussian interests in the name of peace. However, he was still formally allied with King Frederick William, and as such, was under some obligation to look out for their interests. And quite simply, he could have used the help. Bonaparte could be a lot to handle. Alexander's task would be easier with another monarch in his corner. Napoleon agreed to include the Prussian king, but under a condition. He wanted two separate peace treaties, one between France and Russia, and another between France and Prussia. That might sound a bit pedantic, but remember the Prussians had essentially no leverage. If they had to negotiate with Napoleon separately, he would essentially be able to dictate terms. Alexander agreed, and Frederick William was allowed to join them, although he would find himself mostly a spectator. Napoleon was ready to come down hard on the Prussians. Not only had he occupied their entire country, their ill-advised and somewhat abrupt declaration of war in 1806 had personally annoyed him. Although Napoleon was usually quite practical, he was not above using his power to punish what he saw as offensive behavior. In fact, Bonaparte had already drafted a declaration announcing King Frederick William of Prussia was being deposed. He was just waiting to get Alexander's agreement before releasing it. Had that document been published, the subsequent history of Europe, and perhaps the whole world, might have played out very differently. However, Alexander was able to talk him down. Frederick William would keep his crown, and the Hohenzollern dynasty would continue to rule over Prussia, whatever was left of it. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Next, the monarchs got to a more mundane topic venues. This raft in the middle of the Niemen was certainly a dramatic setting, and it had been useful in setting the tone of the conversation, with Napoleon and Alexander literally meeting each other halfway. However, now that they were getting down to brass tacks, it was a little inconvenient to have to paddle out to the middle of the river every time they wanted to speak. And so, a bargain was struck. The French-controlled town of Tilsit would be declared neutral ground, and Alexander and his entourage would be invited to come stay in the town. Frederick William would be allowed to tag along too. The next day, Alexander and his entourage crossed the Niemen, followed by King Frederick William of Prussia and 800 soldiers of the Russian Imperial Guard. A member of Napoleon's entourage described the scene, quote, On the day Emperor Alexander entered Tilsit, the whole army was under arms. The French Imperial Guard was drawn up in two lines, three deep, from the landing place to Napoleon's headquarters, and from thence to the quarters of the Emperor of Russia. A salute of 100 guns was fired the moment Alexander stepped ashore, on the spot where Napoleon was waiting to receive him. 
This meeting attracted visitors to Tilsit from a hundred leagues around. After the observance of the usual ceremonies, business began to be discussed. End quote. Napoleon was invited to review the Russian Imperial Guard. He asked its officers to pick out the bravest soldier in its ranks. This made the Russian officers somewhat uncomfortable. An unscripted interaction between Napoleon and a random Russian soldier could create all kinds of complications. And despite his seizure of the crown, many Russian officers still viewed Napoleon as the avatar of the revolution. They didn't want this upstart Corsican Jacobin infecting their troops with his dangerous ideas. But despite their misgivings, refusing Napoleon could have led to a diplomatic incident. And so they picked a man more or less at random. Private Alexei Lazarev was singled out as the bravest soldier in the Russian Imperial Guard because he happened to be standing nearby. Napoleon called Lazarev forward and pinned the five-pointed cross medal of the Legion of Honor to his chest. This was supposed to be a gesture of respect to the Russian Guard, who had fought so well in the preceding campaign, but it seems to have resulted mostly in annoyance from the officers and confusion from the men. As for Private Lazarev, within a few years he was dishonorably discharged from the army for insubordination. He appealed the decision, but committed suicide before the matter was settled. Perhaps this was all a coincidence, or perhaps it really had been a mistake to award him that medal. Once again, King Frederick William was deliberately snubbed. There was no hundred-gun salute or ceremony when he landed at Tilsit. No special accommodations had been prepared for him. He was given a single room in the local miller's house. Granted, with so many dignitaries crammed into a poor provincial town of under 10,000 people, space was at a premium. But this was a deliberate slap in the face. Frederick William might not have been the sharpest monarch in Europe, but you didn't need to be a genius to see what was happening here. He was being frozen out, which meant the very future of his country was in jeopardy. That night, he wrote a letter to his wife, begging her to reconsider and come to Tilsit. Frederick William was in very difficult waters, and he was not a strong swimmer. He needed Louise's help. Fortunately for the hapless Frederick William, his letter convinced Louise to change her mind. Prussia's warrior queen was on her way to Tilsit. Meanwhile, Napoleon and Alexander were spending more and more time together. This was not the stereotypical Napoleonic diplomatic meeting in some stuffy, over-decorated sitting room surrounded by ministers and diplomats. The two emperors mostly spent their time one-on-one -on -one and outdoors, taking walks and rides around the surrounding area. These must have been fascinating conversations. Two thoughtful, well-read men with unique life experiences, trying to sound each other out, with the fate of the continent at stake. Unfortunately, once again, we know frustratingly little about what was actually said. We do know that these were wide-ranging conversations, covering much more than the specific diplomatic issues to be settled in the treaty. According to Napoleon, at one point they spent an hour debating the merits of hereditary monarchy. Ironically, the ex-Jacobin Napoleon, who had seized his crown, took the pro-hereditary monarchy side, and the grandson of Catherine the Great, who had been born to wear the Russian crown, argued that hereditary rule was inherently unjust. 
Even when they disagreed, the two emperors seemed to genuinely like each other. They were spending far more time together than was strictly necessary to get a deal done. A real friendship, or at least a mutual fascination, seemed to be forming between the former enemies. As we've discussed, Napoleon and Alexander were kindred spirits in many ways. And not only were their personalities similar, who else in the world really knew the burdens and joys of ruling over an empire of millions? Napoleon would later say that if Alexander was a woman, he would have made him his lover. And for his part, the Russian emperor seems to have been starstruck. He wrote to his sister, quote, What do you think of these events? Me spending my days with Bonaparte, to be whole hours head to head with him. I ask you if it all seems a little like a dream. End quote. On the evening of July 30th, an interesting and slightly bizarre event was held in Tilsit. The soldiers of the French Imperial Guard were ordered to host a dinner party for their Russian counterparts. A young French guards officer would remember the scene in his memoirs. Before we dive in, I should note that the Russian guards were selected mostly for their size, and were famous for being the tallest soldiers in the world. Some French memoirs refer to them as the Russian giants. Anyway, from that French guards officer. Quote, Orders were given that we should prepare to give an entertainment to the Russian guard. Very long and wide tents were to be put up, with the openings all on a line, and with beautiful pine trees planted in front of them. Half of us went with our officers to get the pine trees, and the other half put up the tents. We were given eight days to make our preparations, and a circuit of eight miles in which to procure provisions. At noon on June 30th, our feast was spread. More beautiful tables were never seen, all decorated with centerpieces, made of turf and filled with flowers. In the back part of each tent were two stars with the names of the two great emperors, formed in flowers and draped with the French and Russian flags. We marched out in a body to meet this fine guard, which was to arrive by company. We each offered an arm to one of the giants, and as there were more of us than them, we had one to every two of us. They were so tall they might have used us as walking sticks. As for me, the smallest of all, I had one of them to myself. I was obliged to look up to see his face. I looked like a little boy beside him. They were astonished to see us so splendidly dressed. Even our cooks were all powdered and wore white aprons to wait in. In fact, everything was in the best style. We seated our guests at a table between us, and dinner was served. Everybody was in the highest spirits. These famished men could not control themselves. They did not know how to show the reserve that is proper at the table. Brandy was served. Before presenting it to them, we had to taste it and then offer it in a tin goblet, which held a quarter of a liter. The contents of the goblet would instantly disappear. They would swallow pieces of meat as large as an egg at each mouthful. They seemed to become very uncomfortable. We made signs to them to unbutton their coats, doing the same thing ourselves. This made them easier. They had rags stuffed inside their uniforms to give themselves big chests, and it was disgusting to see these rags come tumbling out. End quote. If these same men had encountered each other only a few weeks earlier, they would have fought to the death, with their bare hands if necessary. There can't have been much conversation. Although many of the Russian officers spoke French, hardly any of the common soldiers did. 
and almost no one in France of any class spoke Russian. Nonetheless, judging by how much they ate and drank, they must have found a way to get along without words. Meanwhile, Napoleon's friend and brother-in-law, Marshal Joachim Murat, was charged with providing entertainment of a different sort. The flamboyant cavalryman was well known for his love of drinking, partying, and debauchery. Napoleon told him to seek out like-minded members of the Russian delegation and ensure they had a good time. According to one source, Murat was about to go out on this mission in that outlandish Polish warlord costume we've discussed in several past episodes, but Napoleon stopped him, told him he looked like a circus performer, and made him go change into a more traditional dress uniform. Queen Louise of Prussia arrived in early July. She made a memorable entrance, wearing a semi-transparent white dress. There was nothing indecent here. This was actually a very popular style at the time, and there were enough layers that she was fully covered. Still, the light, translucent fabric left a hint of what was underneath, and on a woman as beautiful as Louise, that made quite an impression. Apparently, when she walked by large groups of soldiers, you could hear gasps and murmurs. Louise had made peace with the fact that Prussia would have to make painful concessions in the coming treaty. There was no way around the fact that they had been soundly defeated. But she had come to Tilsit with a specific goal in mind. She wanted to keep the Duchy of Magdeburg under Prussian control. This province was centered on the city of the same name. The city of Magdeburg was the most important urban center in the country after the capital of Berlin. Not only for its large population and economic base, it occupied a strategic position on the Elba River and had extensive modern fortifications. Without Magdeburg, the Prussian heartland would be much less secure in any future conflict. On July 6th, Louise and Napoleon had a private meeting. This cannot have been easy for her. She was still deeply distressed by her country's defeat, and she absolutely loathed Bonaparte. Louise told the French emperor she had come to speak with him not as a political leader, but as a wife and mother. Napoleon was a strong believer in what we today would call traditional gender roles, so this was probably music to his ears. However, with that humble introduction out of the way, Louise immediately launched into a monologue on the matter of Magdeburg, which could only have come from a politician. Napoleon himself would later describe it this way, quote, she received me in the most tragic tones. Sire, Justice, Magdeburg. She went on in this fashion, which embarrassed me a good deal. Finally, to make her change, I asked her to be seated. Nothing is better suited for cutting a tragic scene short. Once a person has sat down, it turns into comedy. End quote. As you can see, he thought just as little of Louise as he did of Frederick William. Even in private, he couldn't help talking about them with complete contempt. But Louise refused to allow Napoleon to change the subject. Even he would later give her credit for sticking to her guns. He heard her out, then invited her and her husband to dinner that night, which she accepted. As the royal couple arrived at the French emperor's residence hours later, Napoleon was there to greet them. He offered Louise a red rose but she surprised everyone by turning him down, saying, quote, I'd rather have Magdeburg, end quote. Napoleon didn't miss a beat, retorting, quote, 
it is for me to give and you to receive. End quote. Just in case she had forgotten about the power disparity between their two countries. Despite this awkward beginning, the rest of the dinner was apparently a success. According to some sources, the Prussian royals left Napoleon's residence cautiously optimistic about their country's prospects. They wouldn't stay that way for long. The next day, the final text of the two treaties was released. Prussia would be dismembered, losing more than half its territory and population. And these losses were actually worse than they looked on paper, because they disproportionately included the country's wealthiest tax base. Napoleon had agreed to let Prussia keep the Duchy of Magdeburg, but had carved out an exception so they would lose the city of Magdeburg itself, knowing full well this was the only reason they had really wanted to keep the duchy. It's hard to see this as anything other than a deliberate insult. Prussia would also be required to reduce the size of its military to 43,000 soldiers, roughly the same size as just two corps of the Grande Armée. If Frederick William signed, Prussia's days as a great military power would be over for the foreseeable future. Prussia would also be forced to pay massive war reparations, 150 million francs, the largest indemnity Napoleon had ever extracted from a foreign country. On top of that, they would remain occupied by French troops, who the Prussian state would be expected to lodge and feed at its own expense. Most of Prussia's territorial losses would go to two new countries. In the west, a new German state, centered on the city of Kassel, roughly in the regions of Hesse and Hanover, if you know your German geography. It would be called the Kingdom of Westphalia, and ruled by Jerome Bonaparte, Napoleon's youngest brother. In the east, the Prussians would surrender all their former Polish territories to a new Polish-dominated state centered on Warsaw. The Polish patriots were finally realizing their dream. Or were they? I quite deliberately said a new Polish-dominated state, rather than a new Polish state. You'll recall that the revival of Poland was a red line for Emperor Alexander. The Russians would not, under any circumstances, allow the rebirth of a state that had claims over hundreds of miles of territory on their western border. And so, Napoleon and Alexander had reached a compromise that allowed both of them to get what they wanted. Bonaparte would strip away Prussia's eastern provinces and give them to his Polish allies, but he would not allow the declaration of a new Polish state. This new country would be called the Grand Duchy of Warsaw, a somewhat strange name given that Warsaw would be just one city in a country that would stretch over hundreds of miles and contain millions of people. But there was no other obvious name for this region that wouldn't imply some kind of claim on Russian territory, and so this new state was simply named after its capital city. We will have a lot more to say about the Grand Duchy of Warsaw in future episodes. The proposed Franco-Prussian Treaty was a terrible blow to Frederick William and Louise. They had just begun to believe they might somehow escape harsh terms, that perhaps Napoleon was really listening to their arguments, and perhaps his budding friendship with their ally, the Russian Emperor, had allowed Alexander to convince Napoleon to be lenient. But this treaty was almost the worst-case scenario. 
Frederick William had managed to keep his crown, but not much else. You have to wonder if Queen Louise regretted coming to Tilsit and allowing the monster to add insult to injury. That night, Napoleon invited Frederick William and Louise to be his guests for dinner once again. Perhaps unsurprisingly, under the circumstances, they refused, but eventually were persuaded to attend. During the evening, Marshal Murat sidled up to Queen Louise and asked her how she spent her free time. This was a breach in protocol. The remark could easily be read as flirtatious, perhaps even as a proposition. Murat was an inveterate womanizer, so it's likely this is exactly how he wanted it to be read. Needless to say, it was highly inappropriate to do this at a sensitive diplomatic summit, with her husband present. But she was one of the most beautiful women in Europe, perhaps we can't blame him for trying. Louise responded brusquely that she spent her free time reading history. Murat retorted that she might be better off if she spent her time studying current events. It seems the Prussians were just as overmatched in conversation as they had been on the battlefield. Understandably, Frederick William hesitated to sign the treaty, but after a day of deliberation, he realized he had no other choice. On July 9th, 1807, Prussia's hapless king signed away half his kingdom. Privately, Frederick William confronted the Russian emperor. They were supposed to be allies, and Alexander had assured him he would do his best to look out for Prussian interests during his conversations with Napoleon. Was this really his best? Alexander tried to reassure Frederick William, telling him, quote, Napoleon will break his own neck. Despite all my performance and external behavior, I am your friend, and I hope to prove that to you by my actions. End quote. Very cryptic. Was this just classic Alexander telling people what they wanted to hear and keeping his own agenda hidden? Or was Napoleon's new friend playing a double game? Only time would tell. There was no such controversy around the Franco-Russian Treaty. As you might expect, neither country was giving up much. In fact, the terms of the treaty looked more like an alliance than peace negotiations after a hard-fought war. Russia agreed to evacuate several small territories it had seized during the war, mostly in southern Europe from the Ottomans, and France agreed to respect the independence of several small North German states, which were ruled by relatives of Emperor Alexander. But more importantly, the Russians would join Napoleon's continental system, follow France and her allies in banning all trade with the United Kingdom. Secretly, Alexander also agreed to bring Sweden into the continental system, by force if necessary, and to declare war on Britain, just as his father had threatened to do seven years earlier. In effect, Alexander was now aligned with Napoleon on the world stage. Russia had switched sides. Alexander was quite pleased, writing two days after signing the treaty, quote, God has saved us. Instead of sacrifices, we come out of the struggle with a kind of luster, end quote. As for Bonaparte, he had achieved exactly what he set out to do six months earlier. With his objectives finally reached, the emperor of the French didn't waste any time. The very day the last treaty was signed, Napoleon left Tilsit, bound for Paris. 
He hadn't spent anywhere close to this much time away from his capital since his seizure of power seven years earlier, and he was eager to finally return. He arrived on July 27th. His empire was now so large it took nearly three weeks to travel from its northeastern edge back to Paris. As you might imagine, the government pulled out all the stops to welcome their leader back to the city. A senior French politician named Étienne-Denis Pasquier would later remember the scene. Quote, With so many battles fought, so many victories won, and the triumphs of the diplomat added to those of the general, Napoleon re-entered his capital on the 27th of July. This return was celebrated by public holidays, glittering with civil, military, and religious display. I see him now as he was on that day, in his garb of state, which, though slightly theatrical, was yet noble and beautiful. His features, always composed and grave, put one in the mind of cameos representing the Roman emperors. He was a small man, and yet, in that impressive ceremony, his whole person matched the role he had to sustain. The habit of command and the sense of his might increased his stature. A sword sparkling with gems hung at his side. The famous regent diamond formed its pommel. Its brilliance did not suffer one to forget that that sword was the heaviest and most triumphant the world had seen since those of Alexander and Caesar. I recall that Monsieur Bagnot, who was sitting next to me, made that remark. Both of us were, at that time, far from dreaming that less than seven years would suffice to break it. End quote. I think that's a good note to leave you on. Next episode, we'll dive into the consequences of these momentous events. Until then, thanks for listening. One last thing, don't forget to check out other shows on the Airwave Network, like Everything Everywhere, Legends of the Old West, and Southern Gothic. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventures from throughout history. Go to ExplorersPodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast.